One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This episode has been sponsored by Q5, a global management consultancy that helps companies and public bodies improve their organizational health. If you'd like to find out more about Q5, please visit q5partners, all one word, dot com. Hello and welcome to Media Confidential, Prospect Magazine's weekly dive beyond the clickbait to explore the fascinating and contested world of media and explain how it affects you. I'm Alan Rusbridger. And I'm Lionel Barber. On this episode, we'll be speaking to a very big fish in global media, Matthias Dupfner of media group Axel Springer. He has strong views about AI in journalism, media trust, trade, democracy and the future of newspapers. We have to emancipate the idea of a newspaper from paper. I think really the brightest future of journalism may be ahead of us if we learn the right lessons and do the right things. We'll also ask him about Axel Springer's reported interest in buying the Telegraph Media Group, and then we'll discuss who else is in the running with Barclay Brothers biographer Jane Martinson. Don't forget to listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. And Media Confidential is on X slash Twitter at MediaConfPod. Alan, we're together in London for the second week running. That must be a news story. Anyway, <laughs> it's great to be here to pick up the print copy of the latest Prospect magazine. What's in the November issue? Well, uh, we had the dilemma of, of trying to capture Israel Gaza for a monthly magazine, which is um, not as easy as it sounds. But we've got two very good pieces, one by former Knesset leader Avram Berg, a left-winger, on where he sees the future of Israel after the trauma that it's been through in the last month. And also by the Egyptian journalist Khaled Mansour about how this is going to affect the Arab states and the region. A very good piece by Sam Friedman on the COVID inquiry, which has sprung to life this week, really looking at governance by WhatsApp uh, and what this tells us about the whole way that we're governed. And finally, a, a really intriguing piece by General Sir Michael Rose, who was in charge of special services on Falklands. Uh, it's a book review, but it's a, it's a coruscating account of the leadership uh, during the Falklands campaign. And what he claims is a cover-up over the bombing of the uh, the naval ship, the Galahad, with a, a loss of nearly 50 lives. So um, that's quite a meaty read. I've been looking at the reporting on the COVID inquiry, and I must say, even as a grizzled vet, I found some of this stuff quite incredible. I mean, the fact that Cabinet Secretary Simon Case is essentially saying it's impossible to work with Boris Johnson. He is no leader. We cannot go on like this, going from one course and then turning around 24 hours later. It, it's, I mean, it kind of confirms what we thought. It is astonishing stuff. And it, until this week, it was slightly surprising that it hadn't been much reported. But I think that will change with the uh, really dynamite evidence that seems to be emerging this week. I must say, again, wearing an old hat, if I was editor, I'd actually be carving out some space 
every day in the paper to make sure that it's on the record what actually went on as revealed in the COVID inquiry, not just because it's obviously running into a cost of millions of pounds. Couldn't agree more. So, Alan, if I'm taking a stroll around town, where are the best places to pick up a copy of Prospect? <laughs> well, in all good um, bookshops that sell magazines in, in um, WH Smiths at airports and, and railway stations. But, of course, it's available online uh, and on your mobile phone. And there's, of course, an exclusive offer for our podcast listeners. You can get an annual subscription to Prospect for as little as £49, which gives you digital access to all the magazine's best long reads, commentary and cultural criticism. If you're quick, you can also get a free signed copy of Breaking News, Alan's book about the remaking of journalism. Sign up now at subscribe.prospectmagazine, all one word, .co.uk slash Media Confidential. Uh, so, Lionel, we've both been receiving a reaction to last week's episode about the BBC and its reporting of the Israel-Hamas war. I think it was, it, it was a good thing to surface that because it's been damaging for the BBC, there's no question about it. But the, there's a question in my mind now about what is sayable about this conflict. I, I mean, it's, it, we've seen Labour front benches and, and Tory politicians now being effectively cancelled for saying the wrong things about this war. And it seems to me important that the, the, the media is free to cover this in, in all its uh, dimensions. Yes, it's, it's not good enough if you can't mention the word Palestine without being accused of being anti-Semitic. I do think it's really important, and we did that, to write, speak about the appalling assault from Hamas, violence against innocent people, innocent Jewish people in the kibbutzes. One needs to make that clear. But at the same time, you have to think beyond the conflict. If I had a slight criticism of some of the TV coverage, it's very much focused on what's the next military move, rather than thinking, is there a uh, an overall political strategy. You know what comes next in Gaza. Clearly, Hamas is totally discredited, and they're, they're out. So, what what does come next? And then, secondly, obviously, the regional players, particularly Iran, that seems to be behind this. I've been struck by um, a, a couple of rival podcasts. The Ezra Klein show on the New York Times had a fascinating episode with two uh, liberal Jewish American journalists, Spencer Ackerman and Peter Beinart. Uh, which it seems to me went far beyond uh, anything that we're hearing on, on the BBC in terms of liberal Jews who are very pro-Israel but also very pro-Palestinian. And it was a kind of discussion we're not hearing much in British media. Uh, Jonathan Friedland and Unit Levy, they've got a podcast called Unholy. Uh, Unit Levy is a journalist on Channel 12 News in, in Israel. Again, broadly liberal Jews able to discuss this in, I think, a wider dimension. And finally, in, in terms of media, David Remnick uh, and The New Yorker. I mean, Remnick jumped on a plane the moment he heard about these Hamas attacks. And he's such a great reporter as well as such a great editor. Um, and I can't recommend too strongly the big piece he wrote uh, in, in response. It's just a, gr a great piece of reporting. Very quick plug, though, for I thought a fantastic piece in The Atlantic by Simon Seberg Montefiore, essentially looking at the way in which parts of the left have looked at this conflict without any sense of history, 
looking at this in terms of colonialism, settlers. And he just reminds us what actually happened in the turn of the century, 20th century, the British role. And he's also very critical of Netanyahu and is very clear there should be a two-state solution. But I think in terms of the big picture and the historical canvas, it's a really excellent piece. This traumatic conflict is is still ongoing, and I'm sure we'll return to the, the way it's been covered before too long. But one other media headline caught our eyes this week. Hi, folks. Boris Johnson here. I'm excited to say that I'm shortly going to be joining you on GB News, and I'm going to be giving this remarkable new TV channel my unvarnished views on everything from Russia, China, the war in Ukraine, how we meet all those challenges. Yes, Boris Johnson is the latest Tory politician to join the right-wing TV channel. GB News revealed that the former UK Prime Minister and Daily Mail columnist would cover the forthcoming elections in the UK and the US. Johnson himself said he wanted to discuss why our best days are yet to come and why he believes people, and I quote, want to see more global Britain, not less. Whatever that means. I mean, there is an issue here, isn't there, Lionel, uh, uh, about the, the advent of opinionated television and you could say opinionated radio but when you look at GB News, you can't help feeling they're having a laugh. You look at the, the roster of people who already are Tory, both Tory MPs and uh, presenters. You've got Jacob Rees-Mogg, Philip Davis, Nigel Farage, a, a wannabe Tory MP, we suspect, Esther McVeigh, Lee Anderson. I mean, if, if, if there was a pretense of balance here, as, as law requires, You'd be more sympathetic to the idea of Johnson popping up here, but but something very weird is going on, and I th I think this is probably a subject we should return to on this show. But okay, Ofcom is doing an, a number of individual inquiries, but I'm not sure this is enough to really tackle what is a wholesale takeover by the right of a of a opinionated TV channel. Yeah, it's very much the American model, isn't it? Not least, of course. Donald Trump, TV personality, politician. I'm sure that Boris Johnson has looked at his career and thought, I think I can borrow some of that. But you've seen a drift. I mean, LBC has been tremendously successful with the phone-ins where there is commentary. But the point here is that LBC does have balance. There's very strong commentary, but it, you can feel there's a bit of leftish and there's a bit of right. This GB News is... It's, it's black a, and white. It isn't is. It? It, I mean, I, I I cycle into work every morning, and I I listen to Nick Ferrari, and then I listen to James O'Brien. You have two entirely different political points of view. Well, Michael Grade, I'm sure, is a, a listener to Media Confidential, and Michael, if you'd like to come along and tell us what on earth is going on at Ofcom, we'd be uh, only too delighted to have you. Seconded. Now, on Media Confidential, we like to bring you interviews with the key players in global media, and this week's main guest is certainly one of those. Yes, we've been talking to Matthias Döpfner. He's the CEO of Axel Springer, an international media group based in Germany. And full disclosure, I have known him for 20 years. We've been both social colleagues and commercial rivals. Döpfner is a journalist as well as a businessman. He was editor-in-chief of the Hamburg Morgan Post, uh, and he actually started his career as a music critic at the Frankfurter Allgemeine. 
A little bit of overlap here with you, Alan. Matthias has built Axel Springer into a global company with acquisitions in the United States like Politico and Business Insider. Not many German media groups have gone global, so I asked him to talk about Axel Springer's ambitious international strategy. It is, I would say, more a transatlantic media group than truly a global media group. It is mainly Europe and America. And I had always a personal interest and perhaps even passion for the United States. At a moment where we got closer to a European market leadership in digital media, we realized that the growth opportunities in these relatively small language markets are limited. And then if we limit our activities to democracies... The biggest media market in a democracy is the United States. So it was actually a pretty obvious choice. And uh, we have prepared for that, you could say, over many, many years, also with a team of managers who have uh, lived in the United States and uh, worked in the United States so that the cultural shock is a little limited because many European and German companies have cultural shock experiences in the United States. In our case, uh, I think that was pretty much the opposite. It was more like a homecoming. You own Politico, which, which has a, started in America, but then also this Politico Europe. How did these two entities work together? And do you want to put them together to make uh, something to rival, say, the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times? So in general, we are not big believers in corporate synergies and all these cerebral structural thoughts about cost efficiencies and so on. It's rather how to empower decentral entrepreneurial energy and uh, journalistic charisma that is very often pretty much the opposite of corporate homogeneity. So that's how we run our portfolio of different assets and also our portfolio of media assets. And that's why we would never want to bring together, for example, uh, Business Insider, uh, Morning Brew, uh, this uh, digital uh, newsletter for a rather younger business uh, audience, and Politico. Uh, these assets, these brands remain relatively independent. But of course, if it is about Politico US and Politico Europe, it would be insane not to have at a certain level a uh, management that is in charge of a global strategy where political Europe is an important element of. So to be very precise, the newsroom remains uh, independent and pretty separate. They can and should uh, exchange interesting stories, should cooperate if it is about investigation, but uh, they run their own products. If it is about management ranging from technology to certain levels of cooperation in uh, advertising sales, uh, I think uh, it is under the umbrella of the global political leadership in Washington. And tell us how you feel Politico in the US stacks up against rival publications and how do you measure whether it's actually being successful? It's interesting that you're asking me that because it is to be expected that I have a strong bias here. Um, I think the interesting phenomenon on this, the brand is 15 years old. If we look to the respect and to the relevance that it has gathered in political news reporting and also breaking news and scoops, I think that's remarkable. As always for journalistic brands, there are sometimes symbolic, if not iconic events, uh, like for the Washington Post, it was Watergate and for Politico in a way, Roe v. Wade, uh, this very important story 
that was based on material from the Supreme Court. Before the ruling. Exactly, before the ruling. I think that was an important moment. So Politico does well, but I think in general, the most important thing is that you avoid any degree of complacency. And Politico is still at an early phase of development. We want to internationalize the brand. It should go to different geographies in Europe. We have started a Politico uh, London, a Politico Paris uh, edition. We will launch a Politico uh, newsletter as a first step in Germany. Uh, we are doing this California edition that is also a very important lesson if that works that shows incredible growth potential in the United States but also in a way strategically Politico needs to be a brand that is in text audio and video almost equally present and that really takes advantage of the empowering tools of artificial intelligence and there is a, a way to go and a lot to do so I would say we are still in a startup mode. I'm fascinated by what kind of publisher you are, Matthias. And um, I, I saw you quoted when you bought Politico as saying that you were interested in non-partisan journalism. But of course, you have very partisan titles. I would disagree, if I may. That yeah. is always the cliche that Bild is partisan because it's a tabloid uh, mass market product with emotional, personalized headlines. I think it would only be partisan if it has a political agenda, if it supports one political party, or if it is predictable in a certain respect. And I think that's not the case. So we would claim for the entire portfolio to be as non-partisan as possible, as unpredictable as possible. Not neutral. Journalism is never neutral. But I would not say Politico is nonpartisan and Bild or Welt or Onet in Poland is partisan. Occasionally, that may be the case, but then it's a mistake. Then it's not good journalism. Okay. And in terms of your own role, I'm sure it was not something you welcomed when your emails were leaked, but it, it looked as though you, had, you were a person of strong views and occasionally pass those views on to your editors in terms of asking your editors to pursue a, a particular line. Was that a, a misleading impression we got from those emails? Well, I still think that private conversation is something different. You cannot imagine what I say in private conversations. I have very explicit uh, views, even in public. How will that be in private conversations? And I take really the freedom to basically say and do privately whatever is in the framework of law and uh, the Constitution. Uh, but, I mean, I, I'm in that school, you have to exaggerate in order to be understood. So I think the spice of nice punchlines and um, outspoken views is an important element in journalism, if it is about commentary, if it is about um, editorials. But the clear separation between news and facts and reporting on the one hand and on the other hand, perhaps even polemic commentary, I think is an important distinction. And uh, culturally in our company, the most important principle is that I worked many, many years in order to make sure that not everybody writes or broadcasts what I think is right or what we think is right. So it is all about plurality and it's all about the authority of uh, editors-in-chief. And part of that freedom is, of course, that everybody in, in the company can express her or his views. And we have sometimes very lively debates. Suddenly, Friede Springer enters a room and says, I have, uh, what a horrible story. And the good thing is, in our culture, the editor turns around and uh, does exactly what he wanted to do, regardless of these uh, subjective views or commentaries. Your editors are, are, are free to ignore you. That's a wonderful way to put it. Yeah. 
Okay. I mean, the one, one reason to ask is that you've, you once tried to buy the Telegraph and you're, you've expressed an interest in buying the Telegraph again. And people generally want to buy titles in Britain either to make money or for political influence. How, what kind of an owner of the Telegraph would you be if you got it? So, first of all, you will understand that we never comment uh, M&A speculation publicly. And so I stick to that principle now, too. But, but perhaps one thing, just to put it into context, we have defined clear strategy for the publishing group. And that is uh, that we want to become the leading digital publisher in the democratic world, that we focus on a digital-only strategy. And that's why our growth strategy, being it organic or anorganic, would focus entirely on digital-only assets. I think it was 18 years or so you did try to buy the Telegraph and failed, and you came very close to buying um, my old newspaper, the Financial Times. What attracted you to the British market? The British market is a very lively, highly competitive, traditional media market. It's a democracy. It's a very vital democracy with ups and downs, but altogether still a lighthouse of democracy. It's also an important market quantitatively. And for these reasons, uh, we still regret that the Financial Times and Axel Springer couldn't marry. We did talk about it. I remember, I can say this now, this is the open uh, democracy here, uh, when you and I had a conversation in Sun Valley about what it might be work like working together uh, with you as proprietor and me as editor. And, and I thought, I did say it was could have, would have been rather interesting, especially when you offered me a column or two on the op-ed page. But just, just going back, one last question on the Telegraph. I mean, at the time, did you think there was an anti-German undercurrent at that time which blocked you from buying the Telegraph? Or do you think it was just that the Barclays, the Barclay twins, had just more money? Definitely the latter. I think in both cases, it was unfortunately as boring as it may sound, uh, just the money. And we are very disciplined bidder. We would never enter a bidding race, let's say, for prestige reasons. We got to get it and we have to show that we are the biggest and whatever. That is not in our uh, nature. So rather miss an opportunity and remaining disciplined and not uh, overpay. And so it was only driven by that. Yes, what you are recalling was an element, but I think it didn't play a role. There was a funny story, actually, from a today's perspective, really funny. There was uh, a British publisher who spoke up publicly and said, now the Nazis are coming to uh, England and we don't want them. And then he realized after he published that, that he just picked the wrong example for that because of the uh, history and the positioning of Axel Springer. Uh, he found out that he basically just criticized the wrong person and then we had a wonderful meeting in his office he invited me he apologized for that and since then we have a fun relationship so that was a little kind of glimpse of uh, this anti-german sentiment but i didn't feel it in general at all on the contrary we we felt very well received in england did you think on disciplined uh, bidder do you think that you now uh, would still pay 500 million for business insider yes very clearly. I mean, Business Insider was a very good uh, acquisition and the development since the acquisition uh, led even skeptics who said at the beginning when we were making the acquisition based on a 400 million 
uh, valuation that that was overpaid. They admitted a couple of years later that it was actually a very reasonable, if not cheap price, because the value of the company went up since then. No, no, we are super happy. I mean, of course, at the very moment, insider, business insider is, uh, as every media brand in the United States at the moment, suffering from some headwinds in digital advertising. But structurally, over the last years, uh, we are super happy with it. And it broke even way earlier than expected. Revenue growth in some years, uh, north of 30%, even 40% top-line revenue growth. I mean, I don't see so many media brands of that dimension which could claim that um, we would definitely do that move again. Just to pick you up, when you when you said you're only interested now in digital-only products, does that mean that you don't have much faith in printed newspapers in future? I think that it is very clear and obvious that print will disappear over time. Now you can have a long debate, how long is that going to, to take? But it is very clear that uh, the print reading habit is a generational habit. Younger uh, cohorts only very occasionally do that or not at all. And I'm not very sad about that. It is since many, many years very clear that we have to emancipate the idea of a newspaper from paper. If we say that great journalism and newspaper journalism is totally bound uh, and linked to paper out of trees, then I think we make a terrible strategic mistake. It's like when the automobile came up and you were producing uh, horse carriages. The only way to succeed in that transformation is to define what you're doing. It is not producing horse carriages. It is transporting people from A to B or producing interesting transportation tools. And our business is information. We want to inform readers. And if we can do that on digital distribution channels way better than ever uh, on analog distribution, that's actually great news. And I, I have to say that this whole debate and in a slightly depressing tone, uh, the future of journalism is so bad because print is dying. I just don't get it. I think really the brightest uh, future of journalism may be ahead of us if we learn uh, the right lessons and uh, do the right things. Uh, that is counting on uh, journalistic quality and relevance, on news, to find out really something that was supposed to be not found out, which means investigative news, reporting, great correspondents, charismatic writers, uh, editorialists, commentary uh, writers, intellectual quality, intellectual charisma and relevance. That's what counts. And we can benefit from artificial intelligence big time in that context, I think. How exactly? Because you've been doing a lot of thinking about how AI will play out both in, in print and digital. I try to be as precise as possible. First of all, for everything that I'm now saying, there is one precondition. And that precondition is that we come to a legal framework or to an ecosystem where everybody who is producing intellectual property has an incentive to do so. And that means has a business model. And that means even more concretely that we have to make sure that the revenues that AI platforms will generate in the future with the intellectual property of others, make sure that the creators benefit financially from what they are doing. How that is going to be engineered, that's a long discussion. We should probably not go into it. And by the way, I don't have the simple solution, but I'm very confident since this is so obviously a 
game changer, not only in business, but also for political institutions. And every politician understands that that can easily overrule her or his power. I think the likelihood that they will come up with something reasonable is very high. So let's take that as a given. There will be a healthy ecosystem where IP creators have still economic incentives to come up with IP. Otherwise, democracy is going to die. So let's not be too dystopian today. Then I think very concretely, journalism can, to simplify, reduce and delegate large parts of uh, traditional workflows and slightly less exciting elements of our work to bots and machines and can entirely focus on the exciting intellectual core of our uh, doing and that is great journalism and with that really work on the distinguishing factors and competitive advantages and even more concretely that means error correction in text translation layout photo selection technological production of a text or a video and of course also text aggregation to just rewrite wire services and things like that that all will be done in the very foreseeable future by bots almost no human being should be involved in that and that means that we reallocate the 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 money that we save here into more investigative reporters, double, triple the team of investigative reporting, more correspondents, more reporters who really go out and see something and describe reality, because that's something that a bot definitely cannot do. They can help us to analyze data, to summarize uh, long documents, but a good report that describes reality remains really something that humans can do better. And focus on that, that makes journalism better, it makes it more relevant, maybe even our, our business model more attractive. So I think it is at the same time an existential threat and a super exciting opportunity. Well, there's plenty of more to come from Matthias later in the episode. Uh, must say, I was struck by what he had to say about artificial intelligence. He's uh, got really the, the fervor of a convert and uh, there are going to be job changes, job moves, some job losses. That is the coming story, I think. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting perspective, both as a businessman with, a, with an eye on the bottom line and as, as a journalist, because clearly there are quite mundane tasks within news organizations that can probably already are being done by bots, machines. But it comes with great perils, um, as anybody who's played with ChatGPT knows. You know, uh, it has the ability to hallucinate in a way that a grizzled old sub-editor, even after five pints, might not. I've certainly seen a few hallucinations there <laughs> sometime after nine o'clock in the evening. But yes, it's not enough to have guardrails. It's interesting, by the way, I was talking to one uh, editor-in-chief who's basically saying we, we're not going into this area at all. We're having them, in a sense a moratorium on AI deployment. I'm not sure that's sustainable for very long. I mean, I'm sure you've played with it. I've played with it. We've played with it um, in the in the Prospect newsroom. And uh, we, we are treading with great care, but it is astonishing what it can do. Uh, and I think you'd be foolish to turn your back on it altogether. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In a few minutes, Matthias Duffner talks about Elon Musk, he's a personal friend, and why trade and capitalism have not brought democracy to countries like China, as many in the West believed they would at the end of the Cold War. But let's go back to another part of our conversation, the future of these key UK media titles. Now, almost since its first edition in the 1850s, the Telegraph newspaper has printed each day with the motto, was, is and will be. What it won't be anymore is owned by the billionaire Barclay family. The entire business, which also includes the Spectator magazine, having been put up for sale after a row with its lenders. Basically, the Barclay family, billionaires though they are, owe Lloyds Bank close to just shy of a billion pounds. The Telegraph Media Group's got a valuation of between six and seven hundred million pounds. Um, and I'll try very briefly to summarise the numerous potential bidders. We've got the Daily Mail Group, obviously competition concerns if that went ahead. There's a little-known Czech multimillionaire, Daniel Kretinsky, who's been funding newspapers in France, including Le Monde. We've got the new kid on the block, Paul Marshall, who's uh, behind GB News. We've got David Montgomery, who bought all of the old Johnson Press titles. Uh, Sir William Lewis, as we must call him, a former editor of the Daily Telegraph. He's, he's supposed to be there with Middle Eastern money. Axel Springer, we've already mentioned. And amazingly enough, and this is a curveball, the Barclay brothers themselves, or the remaining Barclay brother, and their sons have made an astonishing bid for a billion pounds, which is way over the notional value of the titles. It's been rejected, but it's there on the table. And a couple of weeks ago, journalist and academic Jane Martinson joined us to profile the secretive Barclay twins and their family. And she talks about her new book, You May Never See Us Again, The Barclay Dynasty. You can hear that in episode four of Media Confidential. But we held this part back to play for you now. And here's Martinson on the battle to own the Telegraph. I'm now old enough that I covered the uh, purchase by the Barclays of the Telegraph the last time round as media business editor at The Guardian in 2004. That was from Conrad Black. Nearly 20 years later, when, you know, we all know what's happened to newspapers um, in terms of revenues and readership since, still as many people very keen to buy the Telegraph. And that's partly because of the nature of media and influence and partly because of the incredible timing of this. You know, it, it's... A historic national newspaper, yes, but it's a time when the sort of media is, is going through this massive shift and also politics. We've got the election next year. If, as the polls predict, we will have a Labour government, then whoever gets to own the, the Telegraph will possibly have a big say in who the next leader of the Conservative, a sort of real voice on the right. So lots to play for, lots of shifts. So a good time to own a big national newspaper. Conventional wisdom says that legacy media is well past its peak in terms of profitability and influence. I mean, are you surprised to see so many bidders? What are they aiming for here? 
there's sort of different buyers if you clump them in in different bits. Obviously, Lord Rothermere at the Mail, who wanted it last time but pulled out because of competition concerns. So that raises interesting questions about whether it doesn't matter anymore. Um, how many newspapers you have which are right-leaning because there's so much else, so many other voices online. There's also the issue of Sir Paul Marshall, who is the major investor in GB News, and Unheard, who, having talked to lots of people who know him over the last couple of weeks, he's very interesting in the whole freedom of speech. He's sort of libertarian when it comes to having your voices heard. And then, of course, there's journalists like Will Lewis or um, David Montgomery with his, you know, people that sort of have different opinions. I think they're after the same things people always want with newspapers. You know, they have an influence and a position that punches above their profits. Does it surprise you that the, the remaining Barclay family seem so determined to cling on to it? I mean, this extraordinary bid of, of maybe 300 million more than uh, others uh, are expected to bid. Why are they so desperate to cling on to this title? Now, that I would only be able to hazard a guess. I think it means a huge amount to them. I think sort of losing that quite soon after losing the Ritz, you know, they're two absolutely most prized assets in terms of the family ownership and the power and influence that holds is obviously attractive to them. I mean, it would be so interesting to know who in Abu Dhabi is providing the money and what sort of stake they get. But I mean, the clever thing about this is if it's a debt swap, what they're presumably hoping for is that they don't have to do a change of ownership. And so Lloyds can walk away with the money and they just get to, instead of owning it with huge debts to Lloyds. They own it with huge debts to Abu Dhabi investors. And I think Lloyds, before doing that, will absolutely want to see the money and see where it comes from and um, literally probably have it piled up in uh, note form. Not that they do that anymore, but the equivalent. If the Daily Mail group get the titles, though, that would give them more than 50% of the domestic market. I mean, is that a problem in the new media age? I mean, the Secretary of State will probably do a public interest notice, I think, because of the nature of the Telegraph, particularly in that case, because that would be such a dominant voice. And Ofcom will get involved as well, obviously, as as the CMA will be what yardstick they use. Do they say, well, now voice has become, it's not about the paper, it's not about having a legacy title, it's about online voice. The interesting thing, though, if that was the case and they were really not at all powerful, why are so many people interested in buying the Telegraph? Now, we've already got a Russian-born owner of one UK title, Lord Lebedev of Hampton and Siberia. We've, well, we've got Saudi money in the independent. We could have Saudi, Qatari, Abu Dhabi, Czech money in, in, in owning the Telegraph. Does that matter? Are people uneasy about that? Can you honestly cover those regions without fear or favour, if you know that that is where your money is coming from? Very good question. And not yet been tested by any regulatory power or government, indeed. So, so far, we've had an investor from Saudi Arabia, a businessman, who has understood to be 30% of the independent and uh, standard. And there were no, no questions asked. So there's a sort of understanding that there is a cap as long as that foreign investor is from what's considered a relatively friendly state, so not Russia, then they can have a minority stake. Now, that hasn't been tested. It's a newspaper group, the same as a football club. I think most of us who've been involved in journalism would say no. You would hope people in government would say no too. I mean, Saudi's obviously very interesting because they do not have a good reputation by any means about freedom of the press. 
UAE is different. We don't even know who it is that we're meant to be speaking about. This has not been an open process so far, but then it's very early days. The only thing I would say is Lloyds are very keen to get rid of this before the election. No highly regulated bank wants to be owning a newspaper that backs the Conservative Party and has always done going into a general election. So they'll want to do this soon. So all these issues about regulation, you know, it's not just price, it's speed with this sale. Jane, I'm going to put you on the spot and say who is going to actually win this uh, title? Oh, I said there's so much to play for. Honestly, there is. There's, there's so much because I think now that the Barclays, if this money is real, I mean, really, if they've managed to get a billion pounds from somewhere in Abu Dhabi and Lloyd's can see that money and go away without all of this, that's quite tempting for Lloyd's with its shareholders. And then we won't even have a process and a bid. So I, I think it's going to be really fascinating. So in, in some ways, Lionel, um, Jane's book uh, which is very timely, is an obituary for, for the Barclay Brothers era, which we thought was behind us with the, uh, the, the sale of the titles. But, I mean, what do you think is going on with this uh, astonishing bid of a, of a billion pounds to get their old newspaper back? Well, you have to remember that the Barclay twins, in order to buy the Telegraph back in 2005, took out a loan to, to finance the bid. And that was around half a billion. And over the years, there was interest accumulated. And a decade on, Bob's your uncle, the amount of money owed to Lloyd's was over a billion pounds. As I understand it, the Gulf investors, there could be UAE, uh, Abu Dhabi money, and maybe Saudi money, but the Gulf investors who've essentially said they will take the loan off the Barclays' hands and they will repay Lloyd's. Uh, that billion. And then the Barclays can run the group. Now, of course, the Barclays would be in hock to the Gulf investors. And you have to ask, is this a form of indirect influence? Why are the Gulf investors doing this? Do they want to come in to media ownership through the back door? And certainly, Danny Kruger, the MP, a conservative MP for Devizes, is asking questions about this. He's urging Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser to issue a public interest intervention notice into the funding behind the Barclays efforts to get regain control of their newspaper. Uh, well, that is that's fascinating background. And again, this is a story that I think is going to go on r- running throughout the autumn. And um, we'll doubtless return to that. Coming up, more from Axel Springer boss Matthias Dopfner on Elon Musk, who I think is a friend, and he may even have encouraged him to buy Twitter, uh, and on his recent book on trade and democracy. Prospect magazine not only brings you Media Confidential, but also the Prospect podcast, presented by me, Ellen Halliday, and some of my wonderful colleagues. In each weekly episode, we have an in-depth interview with one of our writers to shed more light on their recent reporting for Prospect magazine and to give you insight into why their story matters. This week, I'm joined by Khaled Mansour, who's an expert on humanitarian aid, human rights and peacekeeping, who spent 13 years working for the United Nations, including UNICEF, peacekeeping missions and the World Food Programme. On the podcast, we talk about the war in Gaza and its implications for the people of the Middle East and the chances of peace. To hear more, just search for Prospect Podcasts wherever you choose to listen. This is Media Confidential with Alan Rusbiger and Lionel Barber. And now more from the CEO of the international media group, 
Axel Springer, Matthias Dupfner, who's been giving us his views on the present and future of media and journalism. And in this next part, we discuss media trust, democracy and global trade, uh, and also social media, because before it happened, Dupfner was reported as being keen for Elon Musk to purchase Twitter. So how does he think that's going? Yeah, that recommendation came in combination with uh, the idea that perhaps somebody who has experience with, with the media business may help here. The jury is out. Uh, I think it is too early. I don't want to join that, that choir of people who say, well, uh, it's everything bad and wrong. I think it's a bit like uh, what Reed Hastings uh, said. He said other billionaires are buying a big yard. Uh, Elon tries to improve uh, social media. So let's see. Let's look at it in two or three years. I think it is way too early. He's one of the most uh, successful entrepreneurs and inventors. Um, so I would count on some good ideas coming up in the future. But is it really too early? I mean, the abolition of all the the, uh, the trust and safety teams and the, the 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 kind of attempt to try and turn it into a, a better and um, more civilized space. I mean, we, we, can, we can see that's not working, can't we? I mean, so many people are seem to be insiders in X. I, I'm not. I, I just don't have enough inside knowledge uh, to judge that. I, I think it's a radical transformation or change in the, in the business model that comes with, uh, with big um, yeah, changes and sometimes also bumpy phases. But I would just say, given the experiences over the last uh, years and also in other cases, let's be a bit more patient and then we make, at least I, I mean, other people having made their decision, I haven't. Matthias, you've written a very interesting book called The Trade Trap, How to Stop Doing Business with Dictators. This to me has one very important uh, lesson, both to journalists and, and politicians, that in a way this view that we had after the end of the Cold War that essentially by integrating countries like China into the world trading system, it would suddenly become more like us, play by our rules. And you show quite vividly, I think, both in, in terms of your reportage, but also your interaction with leaders, that this has not been the case. Can you talk a bit about that and talk about the way forward? I think this idea of change through trade that has been used very often by many politicians, including almost all German chancellors since Helmut Kohl, proved to be wrong or it came true, but a bit differently than originally intended, because the intent was the more trade you do, the more an autocratic system will open up, the more freedom, human rights, rule of law and democracy will, uh, will come up. And pretty much the opposite was true. Uh, authoritarian systems like Russia, like China, uh, like some Islamist countries got even more authoritarian. I don't see a single example where a country really became, as a consequence of intense trade, more liberal, while uh, democratic economies have been weakened significantly. And I think uh, the membership of China to the WTO in December 2001 is a symbolic example. Uh, this whole membership was based on double standards. So the principle of symmetry or reciprocity was absolutely not given. China enjoyed the status of a developing country, despite the fact that it is meanwhile the second biggest economy in the world. When China became member, its contribution to world GDP was 3.8%. Today, it is north of 18% while the contribution of the United States and of Europe went down significantly since then. And also in absolute numbers, you see that the winner of that asymmetrical trade 
with China, it has created dependency in Europe with regard to German automotive industry, with regard to American antibiotics. Uh, perhaps in the future, it may, even if the Taiwan annexation takes place, uh, even control uh, semiconductors. So I think we have to be realistic. Uh, this idea of free trade is not reflecting the intentions of Adam Smith. I think it is pretty much uh, the nightmare of Adam Smith, what is happening at the moment. And we have to rethink it. Just to continue as we did is naive. And if it needed one last warning, uh, wake-up call, uh, it is the Russian war in Ukraine. This Russian war has been financed by Germany, by Germans' unnecessary dependency on Russian gas. When Angela Merkel took office, Germany consumed 35% of Russian gas. Today, it's 65%. And that has financed the Putin who tries to take over Ukraine. Well, you mentioned Chancellor Merkel. Do you think that history will view her rather differently than, say, five years ago when she was acclaimed as, quotes, in the Trumpian age as the leader of the West? The short answer is yes, Lionel. I think that. <laughs> Very diplomatic uh, for a former journalist. and Oh, still a journalist, a writer. I warned you. I said I'm always <laughs> exaggerating and I have a slightly polemic element in my nature. So play with it. And uh, yeah. Uh, when we have a chance, I'll talk to you about English understatement. Matthias, you've been very critical of Google over the years, um, anti-competitive practices. Do you think that your judgment is vindicated or do you think that Google might be broken up or in the new age of AI may actually be a declining force? Well, I think, unfortunately, a lot of things that, that we were discussing or criticizing 15 years ago or 10 years ago became true. And in certain areas, it is even too late. The kind of abuse of market dominance here and there is so obvious that it is too late to have that discussion. But I think we are now facing really a super uh, exciting next phase. And there everything is possible. And that is really AI and um, open source. And the question is, is that going to strengthen the monopolies or the duopolies even more? And in the end, we have two players here, Google with BART and there Microsoft with Bing Chat and ChatGPT. And because of the data lake that they own and because of their competitive advantages they will avoid or oppress all competition or is it possible that the era of large language models and open source is stimulating a very very unpredictable and diverse competition that may then even challenge former super giants and gatekeepers like google uh, i think uh, truly both is possible and and i wouldn't dare to judge at the moment it's a very exciting new era that is just starting question about trust i mean i guess we're united in believing that in in journalism and believing that journalism is necessary for a good democracy but the public doesn't seem to agree at the moment and there are huge declining levels of trust in all the markets you operate in and certainly in the uk in journalism what are we doing wrong? I'm truly convinced that trust is the most important promise that serious media brands and institutions make. And uh, it is an objective fact that that promise or the delivery on that promise or the perception on the delivery of that promise is deteriorating in high speed. And I think that is the most worrying thing. Jesaja Berlin once wrote an important text where he tried to find out where there is something like universal value. And he came basically to the conclusion there is none because one society is more about freedom, the other one more about equality, the other one more about justice, whatever. There is one thing that seemed to be 
the only universal value, and that is trust. Everybody in every culture, in every country, in every social context expects to be trusted and wants to trust. And if we lose that, that is perhaps the most serious threat for our future. It's not technology. That's actually something that we should embrace. It is really that. And why is that so? Well, that's really a topic for another podcast. The short version is journalists perhaps have to leave our own bubbles and get closer to people's real lives and real interests and real needs And the best way to do that is not by judging things or educating people, but more by finding out things. So more driven by curiosity. I think that would be the best model to counter that. Find out what happens and inform. If we would do that, I think that has the chance to reestablish trust. And as I said, I really count on the wake-up call that artificial intelligence, large language models gave us. This, in combination with the deterioration of trust, should be enough of a warning to say we have to get better, we have to do things differently, driven by curiosity, not by judging things. Matthias Dupfner, what can I say other than Dankeschön? <laughs> <laughs> Dankeschön, thank you. It was fun talking to you. Well, Alan, I don't think that Matthias is quite as big a name dropper as me, but I must say, uh, reading that book, he's he's interviewed some big uh, leaders. Uh, Vladimir Putin, that's how it opens. He had a session with Tony Blair when he was trying to buy the Telegraph, actually, in 2005. He's complimentary about Tony Blair. Uh, and uh, President Erdogan. And, of course, he knows Angela Merkel very well indeed and is somewhat critical of her um, as a political leader, though he's English diplomatic at the end of our podcast, I see. He was even more diplomatic, I thought, on uh, his relationship with Musk and how he thinks uh, Musk's ownership of Twitter is going. I guess if you're friends with the guy, then you're not going to come on Media Confidential and slag him off. But um, I, I could sense him stirring uneasily in his seat when we asked him about that. Of course, the other big media event, um, technology event as well, is the conference chaired and convened by Rishi Sunak at Bletchley Park, uh, the site where all the code breaking was done during World War II uh, on artificial intelligence. I mean, this is partly a political move to sort of position Britain at the center of global governance, if you like, on AI. But I'm also intrigued by wh what are the rules going to be? What are they? They're talking about guardrails. Well, uh, you can have malign actors. How do you stop them? But then there's also another dimension, and there's a friend, uh, Lynn Rothschild, who's uh, actually taken out a full-page ad in, in uh, one of the major newspapers and writing commentary saying, this is the moment that we should be talking about inclusive capitalism, uh, addressing matters of inequality, and not allowing AI to, if you like, deepen the digital technology divide. And I, I think that's a debate worth having. It strikes me how, how late these discussions are. I spent time in, in Oxford uh, and saw a gigantic gift by Schwarzman of, the, of Blackstone, 70 million pounds to, to fund a centre to think about AI and ethics. But in a sense, all this is happening. We're struggling to keep up with what the engineers are doing. Yeah, indeed. I mean, he came up with that uh, plan back in 2018-19, It's partly because COVID, uh, Brexit in this country sort of swamped everything, partly because 
and I'm sort of writing something about this, AI really only broke into the public consciousness, I think, in the last 12 months. And that was, of course, through chat GPT. And, and when people started playing with that, the penny dropped in a big way. It's actually not a penny, Alan. Um, OpenAI is, <laughs> is currently valued at around $86 billion. That's a, you always had a, a head for figures, Lionel. That's why you edited the Financial Times. If you have any questions for us about the media, please send them to Media Confidential, all one word, at Prospect Magazine. Also, all one word.co.uk. And we'll answer a few of them in a special future episode. Thank you for listening to Media Confidential, brought to you by Prospect Magazine and Fresh Air. The producer is Danny Garlick. And remember to listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts with new episodes every Thursday. And we're on Twitter slash X2 at MediaConfPod. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out the latest edition of Prospect Magazine out this very week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.